Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Aaron Schwartzbaum. Aaron is a fellow with the Eurasia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He currently hosts the Institute's Bear Market Brief, The Continent, and Report in Short podcasts. Previously, he's worked at both Data Miner and Premise Data. Aaron, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here today. So one of our first questions that we usually ask a lot of our guests is, how did you first become interested in your field of work, specifically in Russian foreign policy? Yeah, so there's two pieces of that question here. Uh, The first is the language piece, how I got into the Russian language. Um, That's kind of a funny offbeat story. Um, I used to fence in high school and I had a coach from Moscow who had a, shall we say, more brutal approach to coaching than a lot of my American coaches did. And long story short, kind of wanted to understand what he was yelling at me every lesson. Um, So then I spent what, it's now about 14 years learning. It turns out it wasn't very polite, but um, yeah, I stuck with the language, the fencing, not so much. And then the, the other piece here is a very intense World War II-related family history on my mom's side. My grandmother fled into the Soviet Union from Poland. Uh, it's a long, long story. But yeah, it was part of my upbringing, not in the sense of um, the language, but the stories I heard about her wartime experience. And uh, yeah, made me curious. I think Russia is a difficult place to understand. The Russians would say, it's you don't understand Russia with your mind. Um, so I was kind of attracted to that difficulty and intractability. How do we explain this? How do we make sense of what's happening there? From your expertise and background, how has that shaped your view and understanding of the Russia invasion of Ukraine specifically? That's been something that's been heavily covered in the news. It's been something that I think has been the forefront of a lot of people's minds, um, especially given the U.S. involvement. So curious to hear your... Um, feedback on that? That is a loaded question. question. (laughs) Big question, loaded question. Um, I don't think I'm saying anything too controversial when I say I think the takeaway from having studied the region and having lived in Russia is the extent to which in the Russian popular imagination and conception of the state, Ukraine, while it may be politically appendant, is treated as a, a part of Russia. 
I'm, we could talk about prepositions for a second here because I'm, I'm a big language nerd. Um, but the way Russians would say it, I'm not going to use the, the language, but they would basically say, oh, I live out on the Ukraine, on this borderland, um, not in, uh, in the Ukraine as its, as its own, as its own you know, political entity with an independent history. So for all of the talk of NATO driving Russia's invasion, I don't think that's accurate. I, I really think there are much more cultural, uh, historical factors at play. And these are factors that have kind of seeped into Putin's mind. Not that we have really any idea what's going on there, but seem to be increasingly motivating him. Um, and I think we're the, the key factor at play here. Speaking about, you know, trying to read Putin's mind, which is a challenging endeavor. Um, you know, a while a while back, the New York Times described Putin as a commander in absentia, which I thought was sort of an interesting term. And the idea or the the point they were making was that um, at least in, in sort of public uh, public events, he has not focused uh, in a very explicit way on the war in Ukraine and seems to be trying to execute this kind of wait, waited out strategy. Um, I'm curious what you think about that depiction um, and and whether there is a way for us to sort of psychoanalyze what Putin's strategy might be here. Let's start with the the second piece of that. Um, there's a lot of time spent in the fields we've called Kremlinology, trying to decipher the inner workings of uh, the Kremlin and Putin's mind. And I think it's fun, but I would treat it like uh, astrology. Treat it like your, your zodiac sign. I, Take it with a big grain of salt. It's it's fun to talk about, but I, I really think we can't know and we can infer Russian aims from other actions um, uh, to get a clear sense of, of what of what Moscow what's got, what of what Moscow wants. So as far as Putin's leadership style, I think it's a really interesting question. It can speak a little bit to his his general approach. So there's a couple of different trends and histories. I would highlight here. So you mentioned the kind of sit back, wait and see approach. Yes, I think Putin, uh, at least over the last several years or, or decades, has has decided that the West is weak and is, is likely to give in, that the West fundamentally lacks the toughness to stand up to Russia over the long period of time. He's, if not counting on hoping for another Trump victory, he's hoping populists uh, gain increasing um, leverage in European politics. I think there are issues with that thinking and issues with those hopes. Um, but yes, he is hoping to essentially wait out the West. Now, the other thing you mentioned is this kind of aloofness where he's been quiet. And I think what's really interesting is you see that even in the wake of Ukraine striking back against Russian cities, uh, drone strikes in, as it were, the richest part of Moscow. I don't think that was an accident. Um, or in some of the more border regions where Putin would have had a time or would have had an opportunity to come out and strike a very strong political line. This is unacceptable. We will destroy those who want to harm our civilians. He could have said that, uh, but came out and had a very muted take on the whole thing, saying something along the lines of that, oh yeah, our air, air defenses in Moscow work where, well, and we're, we're hoping to improve their rate of efficacy, which is a very, I don't know, apolitical line. So and it's worth noting because it kind of comports with his general approach to politics over the long haul. He doesn't 
really do retail politics in the way that we conceive of them in the West. I mean, they'll have call-in shows, but unscripted interactions with the people and kind of barnstorming, that's not that's not really his style. It never has been. There's a very famous example from really the beginning of his regime, his his first scandal with the Summerine Kursk, which sank and um, came across as extremely aloof and had an interaction uh, up in the north of Russia with people basically yelling at him, go rescue our sons. And uh, one woman was um, actually gave uh, drugs to, to, to calm her down, like on camera. So has never really been good at that piece. I think the other thing is that he he is a kind of a popular leader, both in terms of politics and the support of the people broadly. But um, yeah, as I mentioned, he kind of takes this aloof man in the high castle approach where he focuses some of the political questions he's interested in and the topics that he's uh, cares about most. So while he's been aloof from the management of the war day to day, the onset of the war really seems to have been the product of his mind and not a collective collective decision by Russian bureaucrats and leaders. So that's kind of in contrast there, I would yeah, say. I mean, that's actually some great points. I feel... Um, you mentioned, you know, Putin doesn't do retail politics or how he's waiting out the West. And I think it could be good to discuss or get your take on the differences or insights between how the last and current U.S. Pre- presidential administrations actually handled Russia. Yeah, so a couple of different angles there. Um, I think this a lot, to a large extent, relates to domestic politics. Um, I think... Trump in his day, I uh, you know don't want to get into the question of collusion and the narrative of Russiagate. That's not really what I focus on. I think cast himself as you know, quote unquote more pro Russia certainly, less because of a, a genuine set of values. And I think Trump, as a political actor, tends to be very transactional. I don't think maintains a set of very very strong values. It's more hey, how can I take advantage of the current opportunities. I think that's not unique to him. I think a lot of populist leaders tend to have that characteristic. Um, but yeah, I think struck a line of being you know, more Russia-friendly, mostly to contrast himself with the political establishment and discovered once he became president that the decision-making powers, um, decision-making powers that he's ha- he has are actually fairly constrained by the political establishment, be that in Congress, be that in the media, be that in the military. Um, his ability to to affect decisions that would strike a more pro-Russia line was, was highly curtailed. Now, Biden, driven in part um, by a desire to contrast himself with, um, with Trump and I guess a more hawkish view towards Russia generally among Democrats, driven purely by Trump's political angle, has taken a tougher line. At the same time, I think he's um, exhibited a fair degree of restraint and balance in his response to the war of Ukraine. Um, Certainly hawkish in the sense that he's providing Ukraine increasingly lethal aid, but has sought to maintain red lines about what he does does and does not want Ukraine to do in response. So he's maintained a fairly balanced approach there. Going back for a second, um, you know, you mentioned the recent drone strike in Moscow. And, um, 
it seemed to me that the public interpretation of that is that it maybe signals some sort of potential turning point in the war. Do you agree with that characterization? Is that right? How should we understand this event in the context uh, of the conflict? I I don't view that as a turning point in the war. Uh, certainly, Putin didn't make it into a turning point. You know, this was, as I mentioned, an opportunity for him to declare a new mobilization. We have to defend our defend ourselves from this country that is seeking to destroy us, which is ironic given that that is Russia's fairly explicitly stated aim in Ukraine. But he didn't he didn't make that point and has been extremely loath to declare mobilization. I think Russians broadly, and of course not speaking for every single one, don't really think about the war. They don't want it to be something proximate to them. And I think the last round of mobilization was pretty unpopular based on the conversations I've had with with people I know over there. So he's been extremely loath to you know, escalate this and turning it turn it to a much bigger deal. Interesting. Um, so maybe da- in a sense, like downplaying it itself was sort of a strategic decision um, uh, that that actually maybe contributes to the ability to have the longevity to wait it out, etc. I th- I think it speaks more to Ukrainian politics than Russian politics. There's a growing appetite to just pardon my language, hit the bastards back. Um, and now institutional capability and desire to do that. I saw I saw it described on Twitter that Ukraine's intelligence services are are kind of turbo Mossad now. Um, the gloves are off. Um, they are ruthless and willing to go to lengths to to you know, to conduct to conduct this war wherever they see fit. Um, so I think that is the the more kind of salient dynamic at play. And I'm curious from like your perspective, um, there have been several articles at this point publishing that U.S.-Russia relations are at an all-time low. Um, you know, even aside from the war in Ukraine, there's Brittany Griner. And what are some of the main factors that you see contributing to that? And specifically, like moving forward, what are some of the biggest issues to really resolve? Like also, are we even looking to resolve Um everything like is that even possible like is resolution what the U- is resolution what the US is even looking for yeah so a couple of areas that i think are worth uh, worth noting here so one of the issues at play here is that historically at least and until this most recent conflagration of the war a reminder the war started in 2014 with russia's invasion so people say russia invaded ukraine or reinvaded it continued to invade um Prior to the relationship, or at least the leaders in the relationship, were able to compartmentalize issues. So, hey, we disagree on Crimea, but we can have deconfliction lines in Syria. We can talk about these other issues. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Russian leaders have made it somewhat abundantly clear that they do view these as a package deal. While Western military hardware is being used to kill Russians, even if they're outside of Russia trying to conquer Ukraine, Um that is the dynamic, and we can't talk about other issues at the same time. Now, that has different implications in different places. Um, we haven't seen, and this is kind of one of the enduring puzzles of the war, like large-scale Russian cyber attacks or successful ones against Western targets. There's a couple examples, but really not at the level expected based on how angry Russian commentary has been. We've seen a little bit of latitude for cooperation uh, with nuclear issues, not trashing all of those agreements, although that area is starting to get a little worse, too. So not to strike too pessimistic a note, I don't really see what 
what common grounds there could be now. And one of the big problems is that uh, Putin has become essentially kind of a unitary actor. Now, he doesn't decide everything in Russia, but his whims really to a historical extent, more than they had prior, have really determined what Russia does. Um, And that strips a lot of credibility from him. Um, There's international relations theory about why democracies are able to make more credible commitments. And that's because they don't just come from a leader who can be replaced on a whim of the people or who can change his mind on a whim. They're um, they're the result of a collective decision making process with with a parliament or a Congress that shows there's actually a societal consensus. Uh, Russia doesn't have that. So there's little reason for anybody to trust Russia or Russian leaders as as credible actors who, if they said, hey, we have a deal, they would necessarily stick to that. I mean, think back to Russia insisting right up until uh, February 2022, no, we're not going to invade Ukraine. That's a farce. Why would we do that? So, yeah, I'm not particularly optimistic right now until there is a... A military resolution doesn't mean the end of the war, but until there's enough of a stalemate that there wouldn't be military means for the war to continue to be conducted militarily, and therefore there would be a need to talk. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which Putin and Russia has attempted to uh, sort of build allies and and build power in other corners of the world? Um, you know, for example, you know, Russia has long been been trying to expand their influence in Africa. And, you know, recently South Africa said that they would extend diplomatic immunity to Putin um, if he wanted to travel there for their summit and things like that. And I'd love to better understand what the long term play is for Russia, particularly with regards to investing in like you know, Afri- relationships in Africa, but but maybe sort of more broadly with, you know, the global south, et cetera. Um, and is it just, um, you know, is it essentially the equivalent of like a Chinese BRI initiative or like what what's the what's the end game? Yeah. So to, to comments, um, there are people who know Russia and Africa much better than I do, but can speak to it in broad terms. Um I think the difference between you know, Belt and Road and what Russia can offer, now Russia has military and security forces like Wagner Group. It can certainly you know, send in in Africa to help uh, shore up governments. We've seen that in places like Mali. Um, what Russia can't offer that China can is meaningful capital right now. Russia's not impoverished by any means, but it certainly doesn't have the you know, financial or economic means that, that China does. So what does Russia actually want? Um, I guess we can also flip that around. What do these leaders of the global South want? And I think from their standpoint with South Africa, I think it's it's two pieces. So disapproval of the U.S.-led rules-based order, or as I like to call it, the U.S. rules-based order. These are the U.S.'s rules, and that's what order is, is based on. Um, it's a revolt against that. And Siding with Russia, I don't think it's necessarily always about Russia. They're they're not necessarily trying to become allies with Russia because an alliance with Russia doesn't offer a lot these days. But they are, I guess, sharing an aim with Russia to force a more multipolar world. Um, A multipolar world means there'll be more subjects to competition between these these powers who are trying to exert influence and may benefit them. I think part of that in a lot of this global Southern context is the misdeeds and indiscretions of the West historically. And I think that's something that 
I'd really like to see more from Western leaders to, you know, have have justified Iraq while saying, hey, you know, but no, what Russia's doing is bad. And actually to strike a credible point that's saying, hey, we we made some really terrible mistakes in our history and in our foreign policy. And it's based on these mistakes and based on what we learned that we are so resolute in believing what Russia's doing in, in Ukraine is wrong. Um, having done wrong ourselves, I haven't seen that level of kind of honesty or responsibility around some of the things the West has done. And I'm not trying to both sides here or compare, but I think it is one of the fundamental drivers of skepticism in places like Africa and India and South America. Um, You look at uh, President Lula in Brazil and him, I wouldn't say towing the Russian line, but uh, certainly not following along with the US. And I think there are a lot of Latin American leftists who have a very good reason to be skeptical of, of U.S. power. And so I think that's certainly a dynamic that matters here. And, you know, you, you, you brought up um, China. I think that China relations with Russia seem to be getting stronger from my perspective. For example, there has been a ton of recent news around the shift to trade in Yuan and the impending de-dollarization. Um, is this something that the U.S. should be worried about? And how do you think about the developing relationship between China and Russia and what that signifies? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm skeptical of formulations like impending de-dollarization. It's been impending an awfully long time. I think it's a process happening. But you yeah, now BRICS is launching its own currency. I mean, it, you know, they're not, but there's a lot of... Um, I guess, like, uh, alarmist news always with, like, alarming t- alarmist titles. It's a hot topic yes. with a lot of hot takes. <laughs> um, on one hand, you see more things like joint military exercises in a common line. I think China, while giving some, I guess, lip service to, uh, I believe the, for- the phrase was a uh, partnership without limits with, with Russia, are inclined to be a little flexible here, kind of see how this plays out, because if Russia's weakened, Russia will have no choice but to deal with China on China's terms. And we've seen in things like energy deals, um, China has had no hesitation to use its leverage to secure beneficial contracts terms and pricing purely because Russia has nobody else to sell to. Uh, We also see China being flexible, uh, constructing more oil infrastructure, Going around Russia, Central Asian um, terminals and pipelines that are going to go directly to China and not through Russia at all. Um, At the same time, a strong Russia doesn't hurt China either. That's a potentially valuable partner in this confrontation with the United States. I think that certainly, certainly matters, certainly matters too. You can't discount that. I'm skeptical on, I guess, historical structural grounds major land powers that are next to each other don't tend to get along in the long term. Um, the same issue with BRICS, that people describe this as a particularly cohesive institution, but China and India are in the same organization. That's just going to put a hard ceiling, at least in the short term, for the extent to which that block can really become cohesive and have a coherent policy. They're, they're skeptical of each other. They share a border. They have territorial disputes. Um China and Russia don't have territorial disputes, but like that, I think that factor is certainly there. And 
historically, they haven't always gotten along. They had a border war in the 60s. It wasn't a huge war, but like that did happen. So um, I think it's getting better. I think the partnership is certainly improving. But I think China's main interest here is shared by shared by Russia and having the West weakened or less able to impose an order, maybe tired out fewer military capabilities. I think it still verges on more of a relationship of convenience, but having a common having a common opponent is grounds for a close friendship. That'll get you some mileage. So I think that would be my my view there. You know, it's funny because um, when people talk about great power competition or great power politics, you know, often often folks are citing the US, China, Russia, all in the same sentence. I'm guilty of this myself, as if, you know, these are all sort of like equivalent players. And then when you think about, you know, like the size of economies, for example, it's like the US and China are at the very top of the list when it comes to, you know, countries ranked by GDP. But like, let's not forget, like Russia's number 11 or 12 or something like that. Like it's actually in so many ways, you know, I, I I would refrain from calling it like, a you know, a, a China satellite or something like that. But like, it's not, um, you know, they're the, the uh, yeah, the, like, it, it's not sort of equivalencies when you think about sort of size and, um, uh, and, and control and all those things. Now, from the perspective of who spends, you know, who, who's doing the most military spending, maybe we're all, more, you know, all three countries are more neck and neck. I don't know. Um, but I just, yeah, I find that, I find that interesting. And, um, you know, I think as you said, uh, you know, the, the real sort of ongoing, you know, sort of, uh, real ongoing tension might ultimately be mostly between the U.S. and China. And Russia plays into that picture in, in different ways. So anyway, really interesting. Um, the formulation yeah. I would use there is that Russia's a pain, China's a threat. Russia, Russia is. I like that. That's very. That's a helpful framing. <laughs> said much more simply use, than what I said. <laughs> is willing to use force, um, but isn't a growing power. Not even militarily right. anymore, by virtue of having lost so many tanks and military forces and planes. Um, that'll just take a long time to to replenish and rebuild. Um, China's economy is still growing and is building a navy that's going to be able to increasingly you know, challenge the U.S. regionally and potentially globally. So I think that's the prevailing dynamic. Mind you, Russia still has its nuclear arsenal. So like, yes, that is threatening. But um, for conventional competition, I think China is a much bigger, bigger issue. Um, I was uh, talking to someone recently who referred to it as the final boss, kind of 90s video game language. Uh, but yeah, it's, I think it's a much more serious player these days. I know that, uh, you know, we've heard that you you have a side project going about geopolitics and great power competition. Can you tell us more about that? I can tell you a little bit and I'll have a lot more to say come fall and winter. But the, the short of it is working with a team on a tool that will allow users to navigate great power influence across the world from 2000 to 2022 and compare um, basically scores how they break down by military and economic measures. And yeah, I'm really excited about it, but can't say a lot just yet. I'm just curious, what led you to that work? Well, I think this that work is the kind of, it dovetails my experience uh, in both this political risk space traditionally, um, but also um, my experience in the tech space and in startups. And I am excited by 
building things in the tech space and figuring out what needs are unmet. And so I wanted to do that in a context that I'm pretty intimately familiar with as a consumer of this kind of data and as a user of, of this context. In what ways, you know, you know, you've had experience at startups and, you know, maybe you've advised or have, you know, close people in your network that are working on tech companies. Um, I found so many people in Silicon Valley don't necessarily have a global understanding of global policy, what's really going on outside of the Silicon Valley bubble. And given that you have such depth on both sides, I'm curious if you have any advice or frameworks that you would encourage entrepreneurs to think through as they build their technology, build their products. Can I get on the soapbox for a second of course, here? I have some real beef, and I'm not going to name any names, but there are a number of VCs on Twitter who have tried to disrupt foreign policy and have become commentators on issues, how do we say this delicately, far, far outside their expertise. What if we disrupted the war in Ukraine by negotiating with Russia? Well, do you think you're the first person to have thought of that? Do you think we haven't negotiated with Russia behind the scenes? So, um, I think it's important to know your core competence, um, know when you can lean on other people. If you want to understand the war in Ukraine, go figure, you can talk to Ukrainians. They will tell you what they think. Um, you can get context. You can get context from them. And um, I think that's a really critical piece. As far as questions of you know regulation and geopolitics, it's tough. It's tough to get context. It's one of the things that I'm thinking about and working on in this project. So... Uh, I don't think there's an easy. I don't think there's an easy answer there. But I think people in this space, be that international relations or foreign policy, we like to chat, and so I think people are generally happy to talk about these kinds of subject matters. So yeah, know what you don't know, and I think it's important. It's something I try to do myself to tell you when, like, hey, I'm not an expert here. I don't know this, and then can go try to find someone who who is an expert and can actually explain it to me. Yeah, since you brought up Silicon Valley and VCs. I I feel like we have an entry point to talk about this. One thing that I found really interesting is that there was this whole kind of chapter in Silicon Valley in which all these workers at tech companies were infuriated when they would find out that their companies had, you know, contracts with the Pentagon and, and the DOD, Project Maven being perhaps like the highest profile example there. And it feels to me like the war in Ukraine completely changed that conversation because all of a sudden there was this real kind of moral imperative to be um, engaging and also sort of moral air cover to do things like invest in munitions and weapons technology um, that that hadn't been there before um, and that the tune in Silicon Valley changed a lot. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so I think... There are a couple of issues at play here. But yeah, I think broadly, I, I would agree with that. Um, I don't want to say that war in Ukraine is like a renaissance of foreign policy because there have been intractable, difficult issues long before then, terrorism before that. I think it's just how times have turned that a lot of these sensitivities come uh, you know, during the protests around racial justice in America. And there were tech companies who did things that were viewed as illegitimate broadly. Um, concerns about um, tools being used for things like deportations that people were against. And I think 
a war. I think this is what's happening in Ukraine is the most morally clear war that we've had on Earth in a very long time. It doesn't mean that there haven't been injustices on both sides or, or indiscretions or atrocities, but by and large, I mean, this is this is a much larger country trying to conquer and extinguish a smaller neighboring nation. And that's pretty clearly wrong. It's hard to hard to to kind of deny that that's really the dynamic here. And you don't even have to take my word for it. Take what Russian leaders are saying about it, right? Um, I think that has kind of made people think about the the place for how tech can play international security. And I think what one of the things I've I've thought about and had discussions about is you know a lot of a lot of startups will say oh, we're very very mission driven, but like what is the mission you're trying to accomplish? I think that's a pretty critical follow up question to ask. Um, and so I think people are confronting like what am I okay supporting and doing? So. And this is personally my value. I'm not really here to talk about my domestic politics. I would put myself on the leftier side of the spectrum. But there are, are issues and issue sets that are still going to matter. Even if Bernie were president tomorrow, you know, making sense of what's happening in the world and conducting foreign relations with Russia and China, that's going to be important for any president. And security threats are not going to go away. I'm not comfortable. And again, personally... You know, building drones, which is something that other people may view as legitimate and a, a wise use of of you know military resources. But I think it's something that it's important for folks in this space to to think critically about. And I think most importantly, think about your moral lines before you kind of have to confront them. And oh, actually, if we do this thing, I'm against it. But there's another five million dollar contracts. Like, try to set firm lines in advance. And it can be tough. There's a lot of very very gray area to navigate. Yeah, I. I think I was reading something recently that said it's going to take about $411 billion to recover the damage to and to help rebuild Ukraine. And I think about all of the infrastructure and, you know, like aid and, um, you know, individuals that need to be delivered to kind of help with the rebuild. It's not going to happen in a vacuum, right? And it's sort of the question of, who do you take help from and when and how does that lock you into partnerships or certain sort of dynamics with people or institutions or organizations that are then going to be a part of the new Ukraine? Um, and like who's getting to make those decisions <laughs> about who gets to sit at the table and who you're going to work with? Um, I think all of those decisions happen behind such closed doors and they have fundamental impacts on the people, the government, the infrastructure that the, is then built out over the next you know decades to come. I think the critical piece there, and yeah, there's been back and forth about you know large financial institutions and what their angle is going to be, among other things. Questions about corruption, and that's certainly a dynamic that exists within Ukraine. It hasn't gone away despite the existential war. I would say, and I kind of repeat what I said regarding VCs, talk to Ukrainians. They they are capable of governing themselves. They will tell you about corruption issues. There were a lot of activists who, before the war, were not thrilled with Zelensky's anti-corruption agenda. Um, they have opinions, and it's on Ukraine. Look, this has been an unambiguously horrible thing, but the country now in this rebuilding, once the war ends, and we hope victoriously, 
um, gets to decide what it wants to be and what kind of institutions it wants to have. This is the most cohesive Ukrainian society has been since the country's independence. There's a there's a, a shared experience for essentially everybody in the country. They can tell you where they were in late February and what they did. That political cohesion, not to mention a leader Zelensky now with a lot of accumulated political capital. He may exhaust some of that conducting peace negotiations if when we get there. Um, but this is a, a pretty powerful moment for the country to decide what it wants to be. So yeah, leave it to the Ukrainians. You can give all the advice, but it should be solicited. Listen to them. They have something to say. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that take. Um, Just on the topic of technology, but kind of taking a little bit of a pivot, um, there's been some press around fighting Russia in outer space um, with all of the anti-satellite technology that's being developed within the U.S. and maybe other allied countries. And we can talk about satellite and anti-satellite, but just in general, like how is advanced technology more broadly for all parties going to make relations with Russia easier or more difficult to manage, even outside of the context of, of course, the Ukrainian war. Yeah, space warfare is a lot more fun on shows like uh, The Expanse, which I'm a big fan of. It's not my, not my topic for the end of the show today. But yeah, international, international relations in space is definitely my favorite genre. Easily. Um, Maybe we can talk think- about, like, let's put space aside. What if we just talk about this from the perspective of advanced technology, right? Like technology is yeah. going to make it either easier or much more difficult to manage some of these relations. Like how should we be thinking about that? Yeah. So I think we can uh, zoom on in from outer space and talk about some of what we're seeing in Ukraine. I think there's, I, I'm of two minds on this. So we do see the impact of less cyber in the Ukraine war. And it's actually a big question. Like why has that not been a more critical factor? I don't have the answer to that. But things like drones, which I think really increase the ability of states and non-state actors too, mind you, to conduct kind of offhanded formal, like offhanded uh, foreign policy to escalate. Because now, you know, striking someone's oil facility, you don't have to send a team in and risk their lives. You can just send a drone that's really, really cheap and blow something up and say, no, 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 it wasn't us. These are localized actors. So yeah, increases the scope of escalation. At the same time, What we've also seen is that while the kind of character of war, as the saying goes, has changed pretty markedly, there's drones, there's precision weapons, the nature of war hasn't. And we've seen in Ukraine, despite all these super advanced technologies and cruise missiles and cyber capabilities and drones, hey, turns out it's still really hard to cross rivers. Hey, attacking an opponent who has high ground, it's really hard to do. So like... Some of the laws of gravity haven't actually changed that much. Heck, uh, conventional war between state actors is really nasty, especially in cities. Um, It's a bloody grind through cities. Hey, to fight a war, you need to be able to produce, from an industrial standpoint, enough artillery. Like, basic things. That hasn't changed since, what, the Civil War? World War I? So, like, those, those laws haven't changed at all. So, yes, like... The more things change, the more they stay the same, too, I would say. I, on that note, let's shift to our final segment in which we each share something that we are following in the world this week. Natalia, do you want to kick us off? I can. Um, So I've been following the news around the passing of the U.S. debt ceiling bill. (laughs) Um, I work with a lot of big banks, and so I think that's been the top of mind for a lot of them. 
And, you know, they didn't raise the limit to a certain level, but actually just suspended it entirely until 2025. And what they're saying is, you know, funds are then used to pay for federal employees, military, Social Security, Medicare, et cetera. Um, but I think it's interesting because depending on how things shift out and when we have to revisit things in the next few years, it really, I think, will have an impact on economics globally. And when you think about, you know, many countries own our debt or are linked to our um, economy. And so it was nice to kind of see that they, you know, passed the bill and everything's going to be okay this week. A little bit more nervous for what comes in the next couple of years when we have to revisit it inevitably again. Aaron, what about you? What are you following right now? On a much less serious note for policy, I am a diehard soccer fan and follow the British team, Newcastle United. Uh, we, because I'm on the team, very obviously, um, finished fourth in the Premier League and going to the Champions League next year. And it raises a lot of exciting questions about what kind of players to bring on over the summer. So starting to follow some of those rumors. Also, moral questions. Um I had a very miserable experience, as did many fellow fans for the last 10 years. We had a bad owner who wouldn't invest in the club. And we said, oh, I would take anyone just to just to, you know, see good soccer again. And it turns out that anyone wound up being Saudi Arabia's direct investment fund, which raises questions about sports washing and the morals. Now, the soccer has gotten more fun to watch, but there's some ambiguity there. What does having you know, sovereign nations own sports teams mean? What about competition? How are smaller teams supposed to compete when they're up against petrostates? And it raises really good questions that I continue to think about. A and lot. Aaron, I just need to uh, jump in here. You should look at, if you're interested in sort of that theme, look at the Live League that started. It's like Live versus PGA in, like, in the golfing industry. It's been a huge point of contention with players being kicked off the PGA because they decided to go play on live. Um, so something to check out. Will do. Finally, what I'm following is probably even less serious than each of you. One of the things that I've been kind of uh, following with some humor, I guess, in the, in the last week is that um, there has been some controversy on both TikTok, but now it's also being covered in Axios around how to pronounce Ron DeSantis's name and whether or not he himself knows how to pronounce his name. I gather that apparently in his video announcing his presidential campaign and in some early radio interviews, he pronounced his last name as DeSantis. And then in some later interviews in a week or two later, he started pronouncing it DeSantis and the campaign will not comment or confirm how his name is to be pronounced, or something along those lines. And uh, and so it's it's unclear here if there's actual confusion or if there's some strategic uh, decision being made about what what way is easier to pronounce or what will Americans like more or what. But um, I uh, have found it pretty funny that people are paying attention to this um, and, you know, gotta love social media. And with that, thank you for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Z Weinberg, Natalia at Natalia Talker, and Aaron Schwartzbaum at Aaron underscore Schwa. 
You can, you can hear more from Erin on the Foreign Policy Research Institute's podcast feed, Chain Reaction. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and you want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Thank you.